Hello, Latinos in Clinical Research. Welcome to a very exciting monthly webinar. Uh, we've got two people from the Node Group, Sabrina Ramkelawan. She's the Chief Operating Officer at Node Group, Inc. And we've got Jaspreet Grewal, founder, uh, researcher, venture partner, board director, also with Node Group. And Node Group, for those interested, I mean, a lot of people are interested in this topic, myself included. This is a female-led global CRO and consultancy. They are leaders in plant-based therapeutics and psychedelics. So you talk about a niche, but a very rapidly growing niche, and especially in Canada, where there's a lot of this. Canada's really on the forefront of this type of research, and maybe that's a good place to start. Why do you guys think that's the case? Why Canada, Sabrina or, or Jespreet, whoever wants to go? And by the way, thank you both for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. Um, should we start with introductions or go right into let's it? Let's do introductions and then okay. let's get into why Canada, because I'm interested in that. Sure, sure. Um, so Sabrina Ramkalawan, I am the CEO of Node Group. Um, excited to be working with Jaspreet and a great team of people. Um, my background, registered nurse, and I'm also on the board for MAPS Canada. So there's another tie-in for the psychedelic side and really kind of running kind of the operations, um, overseeing kind of the clinical trials that we do. We do the clinical trials and support that like a typical CRO, but we also do consultancy because if you think of psychedelic companies, they're very much like emerging biotech where there's a, sometimes a lot of handholding. And a lot of times um, the people that are running psychedelic companies don't come from pharma necessarily. So there's that kind of learning curve and helping them along the way. Um, so that's a bit of my background. And as you know, we, we connected. Um, I'm also the president for Clinical Research Association of Canada. And I'm gonna pass it on to Jess Preece. That's a quick snapshot. <laughs> Thanks, Sabrina. And thanks, Dan. And thanks to the committee for having us today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, so as Sabrina mentioned, um, we're part of Node Group, we're the founders of it. So I'm the uh, CEO of the company, um, as well as hold wear several other hats similar to Sabrina, mainly in the general life sciences ecosystem and venture capital space. And we started our company essentially by merging two independent consulting firms that we both had. Um, Sabrina's a registered nurse, I'm a clinician, but we've both been involved in clinical trials and regulatory affairs for about 20 plus years apiece. So a lot of experience in the space, just like most of the audience here as well. Uh, what brought us to this particular industry is we saw a gap in the cannabis industry initially about three years ago or four years ago now, and started to support clients with doing uh, clinical trials in that space. But we quickly saw and learned that a majority of our work right now, so about 60% of our work is actually helping psychedelic companies uh, perform clinical trials and um, repeating what Sabrina said, that strategic advisory component of it. So very quick overview. That's what we do. Um, in terms of Canada, um, just a lot of psychedelic companies are, are setting up shop here in Canada. Um, but a lot of them, even though they have their company here, a lot of them are looking for bigger markets. So looking at conducting clinical trials in Europe, and obviously US is a big pull, it's a big population. So most psychedelic companies are looking at market in the US through FDA, but FDA is more challenging. So typically a lot of times we're guiding people to do clinical trials in Canada. Um, you know, Health Canada has put out some stuff that makes it a little bit more easier um, to do those trials. We are doing trials in the UK, in Australia, just because the regulatory is a little bit easier. Um, but we, we always have the plan to go to the US, especially when you look at breakthrough therapy and stuff like that. Not sure if that answers why, but just a lot of, and maybe it's because there's been so much cannabis companies. We do see some people crossing over onto the psychedelic side. Yeah. I don't know if you have anything to add about the Canada side, not just pre. Um, I'll maybe stop and let Dan ask, uh, jump in with some more questions uh, for now. Uh I was going to say, it makes sense. I mean, the regulatory environment usually paves the way for industry to follow. And it seems like in Canada, um, for some reason, they're, they, they have been early on this, which is good because there's a lot of regulatory burdens in Canada and other, other areas and other industries. But it, when it comes to psychedelics and cannabis, not so many. So compared to the rest of the world, uh, especially the United States, where it's still pretty difficult to 
get studies done, uh, depending on the various schedules, schedule two, three, four. But can you guys talk a little bit about your relationship with maps? We had them on last month for our webinar, and it was a really good webinar. Can you guys kind of give us a little bit of background as to your guys' relationship? Sabrina, do you want to take a take a stab at that? For some reason, you cut off a little bit for me. I don't know if that happened, so I didn't hear the whole question. Oh, uh, maps because we had maps oh, on last yes. last month. Okay, got it. And you mentioned them, so I was just curious. Like, how do you guys work together? Um, so Maps US is different than Maps Canada. So I'm on the board specifically for Maps Canada. So ah, uh, okay. But in a general ecosystem respect, um, MAPS has really paved the way. And to Sabrina's point, MAPS Canada and the United States are also structured very differently. We really look at MAPS USA as really pioneering, if you will, the way for clinical trials in this particular space. They actually got their MDMA study through to phase three at the moment, as you probably heard on their podcast, which is really exceptional. And MDMA is actually the front runner sort of molecule and compound if we look at the general cl uh, classification of psychedelics out there, that'll most likely hit the FDA first. Uh, and MAPS is really is so well-structured, almost like a pharma company, if you will, in the United States, whereas Canada is like an industry support to lend a hand. And for obvious reasons, we're a much smaller country, uh, financially, not as much money going into MAPS Canada as the US, but MAPS Canada certainly works as a way to support the industry, support the growth, education, uh, and fostering of education of why clinical trials are so critical in this particular space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, we do a lot of events. Um, recently, MAPS Canada did sponsor an MDMA trial. Um, it's a separate MDMA trial here in Canada that looks at um, if someone has MDMA, they would go through therapy and MDMA with a, uh, their significant other partner. Um, doesn't have to be marital it's their significant other. It could even be somebody with a parent or, or whatever that relationship is. So it's a different study, but it's also looking at PTSD, MDMA, but just looking at it from a couple's point of view. So you're from going through the journey with someone else. And who's so, funding Who's funding these studies? Is it the- MDMA, MDMA Canada um, has given uh, financial support for it. Um, so, and part of being on the board, we're looking for other opportunities to um, encourage and um, clinical trials here as well in Canada. Interesting. Because I remember, I mean, thinking back to in my research of, of COVID and, and everything that uh, surrounded COVID research, there was a lot of similarities to uh, HIV and AIDS. And then all these groups started forming to like NIH partnered or offshoots of the NIH National Institute of Health to fund a bunch of these programs. So are we seeing something similar to that in Canada? You do see separate funding partners and bodies emerging. Um, so in Canada, similar to the United States, uh, you do have strong academic centers that have been working in psychedelic research for about 10 plus years. Mm -hmm. And now they're becoming as emerging partners, primarily because of the relationships between the researchers and the academics. So it really is those key individuals or stakeholders that kind of bring together organizations. So researchers sort of sharing. In Canada, same thing, we do have private institutions donating funds to further research, either um, psychedelic associations or you have PTSD or veterans associations that are doing that, uh, public health groups. Um, and then you do have at the University of Toronto, I believe it is, they have a separate private foundation or semi-private foundation that's essentially given almost an endowment to further research in this particular space. So you do see a good mix of both public and private funding uh, in Canada towards this area. I see. Is there, are there like companies working, can there be multiple companies working on MDM? MDNA and can they be, can they be, um, do they have to have individual patents for the IP or how does that work? Yeah, um, I can probably start with this question. So from the IP standpoint, you're dealing with most of these products start with a synthetic, uh, sorry, a natural basis. So there is no IP claim over it. IP becomes very difficult um, when you formulize or synthesize the molecules. So you go a synthetic route, say for um, psilocybin, uh, or you further synthesize MDMA, you can put IP claim against it, but 
Merck actually synthesized MDMA a very long time ago. So Merck actually owns it, technically. Merck owns, yeah. Merck owns it. So, but again, you can challenge patents, but where patents become a realization in this particular field, similar to cannabis, is through formulation, extraction, and methodology, as well as drug delivery systems. So uh, because we're dealing with natural compounds, it makes it very difficult. Most people, like any company that has their own product or formulated, can go through clinical trials. IP is a very sticky area right now. So for example, let's say that, I'll, I'll give cannabis as an example. Let's say that you have natural cannabis, right? With On its own, it's difficult to patent if you're looking at flower. But let's say you take that natural extract and now you put into tablet formulation and you put a specific formulation with it, right? You can patent that, right? So similar to, you know, what you can do, you can start with a natural product, but you need to kind of look at what's unique about it um, in terms of the patent. I see. Okay. So then it makes, it, it would still make sense for somebody to take this through phase one all the way through phase three and do the clinical trials. What's the most uh, exciting part of this? Like what, what are some of the latest indications that show the most promise? Um, so certainly like uh, major depressive disorder, um, alcohol use disorder, PTSD is a major area, uh, eating disorders as well. We've seen, there's actually three clinical trials happening focused on eating disorders at the moment. Um, traumatic brain injury, concussion is one area. Pain uh, and oncology associated pain uh, is there too. So with psychedelics, you do see a lot, um, a bit of crossover between different therapies, but it does focus around the mental health or the addiction component of many things. Um, and of course, there's a lot of push for PTSD. We do have emerging evidence already that there are front runners. Um, ketamine falls under the classification of psychedelics, and we have long established data and clinical data and evidence supporting that use already. And of course, it's already been commercialized, if you will, as S-ketamine uh, and first-line therapy in a number of jurisdictions. Uh, psilocybin is pretty a front runner in PTSD, MDMA and major depressive disorder, as well as traumatic brain injury. Um, and you have the smaller molecules coming on board too, uh, like DMT, there's exploration of ibogaine, and now there's subcompounds coming onto the market too for exploration. So pretty big area still. I think the exciting thing is looking at even, because we are already seeing PTSD um, happening and depression, anxiety disorders, but it's interesting to look at traumatic brain injury because that in itself has a lot of impact, especially on mm. depression, suicide. And when we look, that even kind of transfers to athletes, um, you know, um, or anybody that's playing sports. I mean, I've had patients that are like 13 and playing, you know, uh, football, you know, 14. So, you know, you're looking at that whole area of traumatic brain injury. CBI is huge, especially in your red in sports, mm -hmm. football, hockey. I mean, uh, boxing, I think we're just scratching the surface of what really lies underneath that. And when you, when you really analyze what's going on there so that yeah i didn't realize that that's uh, psychedelics are playing or could potentially play a role in that uh we have a comment and by the way if you're in the chat put them in the comments tbi and addiction go together too mm -hmm. so if if you're somebody that is interested in this space and let's say you have a research background let's say you've been a coordinator or a cra for years traditional studies, right? Multi-therapeutic. And you're interested because you want to go to where the future is headed and you think, okay, this is, if nothing else, it's interesting, but I also believe the future is headed in this direction. What do you recommend they do to get involved in this space? Um, so I think from, there's a few different layers to this. So one, operationally, you do need to work at a center or a facility with a background in psychiatry, oncology, anesthesiology, chronic pain, or a multidisciplinary research center, CTU. Uh, that's critical, as well as those that possess controlled substance or DEA research licenses. That's the other critical component. And having a bit of a regulatory background, having worked in these controlled substances is going to be very helpful. Um, I think the second thing is working in those therapeutics areas too, um, understanding the nuances of it, because and we see this with clients and this is what kind of makes, makes us not kind of, but makes us very different and unique from traditional CROs is that we provide a lot of consulting services that otherwise would not be um, understood 
or afforded to clients from traditional groups. So set and setting is critical in psychotherapy. So how do you prime a site? So site feasibility is very different when we deal with psychedelics. It's not a traditional setting. You still have to go through the rigors and the criteria. From an operational standpoint, it's a security setting that you need to look at. It's who is part of the psychotherapy itself, but then also um, what does a physical space look like? Uh, so I would say like those are areas. So if you do want to be part of this emerging area, certain, certainly starting to work with groups in the neurology, in the TBI space, psychiatry, mental health, those are great areas um, because that's where we see the immediate need for the next three years, at least for studies to go. Yeah. What and even you- um, if you want to connect with people going to conferences, even if they're virtual, because we're seeing a lot more psychedelic niche conferences and, and start getting to know the environment, who the people are, um, you know, starting to make those contacts. We've hired people just because they reached out and said, Hey, I, you know, I was at that virtual conference and I'm really passionate about psychedelics. And this is my background. We, we just hired a CTA and it was just from a conference because she's like, I really want to do this. And we're like, okay, what's your background? So she didn't specifically have the background, but she was really passionate and she had, we were looking for someone to fill. Right. So. So you're encouraging people to contact you on LinkedIn. Not necessarily. Say, hey, but Sabrina, yes, did. <laughs> <laughs> you just did that. Well, well, we, awesome. do, we do need project managers. Okay. Um, that's always something we're looking for in CRAs. That's probably the bigger. Everyone's one. looking for CRA, right? Yeah. So those are probably the big ones, but it's also just, you know, people who have a niche of regulatory background with these types of substances, or they've gone through breakthrough therapy before. So they know how to do it with FDA, like those kind of niche things that you might think that you might not even realize you have, and you might go, Oh, wait a minute, you know, um, yeah. Don't necessarily have to live in Canada. Actually, the project manager we have for this project now is in the U.S. Um, and because she had oncology, like she just had all the right fits for the project. Yeah, that's one of the things COVID made Zoom meetings normal. Um, yeah. Jesper, you said something interesting. I want to kind of focus on the uniqueness of being a CRO in this niche. So you mentioned feasibility, super important. Site selection is very different than a traditional study. Um, can you kind of go more in depth on that? What What do you look for in a site, for example, to be able to do one of these studies? Um, well, certainly we look at sites that, as I mentioned, have security measures in place. So having federal licenses is critical when you work in controlled substances. So depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, uh, that will always be critical. So uh, in Canada, you do require a federal research license in the United States, depending on the classification of drug and the level of the site, you do require a DEA license too, in addition to just a controlled substance license. Uh, and that's because it's still a very novel area to work in psychedelics in the United States. Yeah. Um, additionally, you are looking for sites with hybrid capabilities. Like we do look at remote monitoring capabilities. We look at proficiency in clinical trials in particular areas too. So recruitment is a very big thing. When we look at psychedelics, you're typically, if you're dosing a patient, say in psilocybin, you could be in that room for eight to 12 hours. So what is a set and setting? So heavily clinical settings don't work. You can't have fire alarms going off. You can't have, you know, vitals or equipment on the walls because patients can tear that down while they're tripping essentially, if you will. So having room for therapists, having the appropriate staff. So actually wow. goes by. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because we're so used to having these medical environments uh, because that's how, but it's kind of interesting that maybe this is how, you know, how COVID impacted how we do clinical trials. I mean, when we think about people's well-being, if we think about the space that they're in, right? Um, you don't want to you don't want to see vital signs machines and all this stuff when they're going through this, you want it to be a calming environment. There's even publications out there that talk about set and setting and set and setting is so important. Um, and we're actually very excited because we're actually helping um, develop a center in Costa Rica, actually promises innovative um, recovery. And it's actually taking into account potentially group theory one-on-one. And as you can imagine, Costa Rica, if you want to look at set and setting, but it's not a retreat, it, it's medical research but it also now has a setting. So it's nothing like what we've seen when we do clinical research. You know, you look out, you have ocean, you have, you know, you just have that common piece and you've got the psychotherapy and psychedelics in a, in a beautiful environment that's 
conducive to wellness. So it's very different than what we're used to. So you're so, the monitor for that site. <laughs> we're building it actually. So, um, ah. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're building our dream CTU uh, and then bringing our, our clients to actually conduct research there too. So we're building wow. it in an early platform. I'm ready to be a participant. I'm just talking yeah. about there. <laughs> I mean, I would too. <laughs> Can, I'm, I'm intrigued by this set and setting. Can you talk more? Because I'm used to sites like my site. Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't even know if Chris is. Uh, there you are, Chris. Uh, we just had a study. We turned it down. Both of our PIs, we have separate sites. They both said no because they didn't have. Which schedule was it that they didn't have the license? Schedule one. Schedule one. Neither had schedule one. They're like, oh, it's super hard to get. We have to pass. We didn't even get to the set and setting part. And because our, yeah, go ahead. Say, the PI at, at uh, my site in San Bernardino is very interested in the study. Yeah. In fact, he, he was interested in participating if he could, um, but very interested. And then when, he he didn't realize, which I pretty much did, that it would be a Schedule One uh, when they requested his Schedule One license. He's like, "Yeah, I don't have that, and I don't plan on getting it." Why did he say he doesn't plan on getting it? He just said it's it's too difficult. Um, I don't think it is. Um, it's, wait, it's it's hard. It takes a time. It? It's an investment of a lot of million, a lot of dollars, um, but it also takes a lot of time. So at least a year to obtain one. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you do have to, it's a significant uh, financial upfront cost. Okay. Well, he wasn't uh, exactly. Have it, you have it. <laughs> uh, but again, it's usually tied to uh, if you have a large private research facility um, and you have a number of PIs that can be used in a number of different areas, certainly can be used. Typically academic centers usually have it, but there's classifications to what you can do with a schedule one license. So in almost every single jurisdiction in the world, they have, what falls under every license. So are you doing R&D? Are you doing human clinical trials? Are you doing animal? Or are you just controlling or handling the product itself? Right. So understanding what you have is critical. Um, and I think there's a the clear differentiator too. Like there's a lot of clinicians interested in participating in psychedelic based research. And some, and many want to take part in it just because they want to learn. How can you be able to help your patients and provide a duty of care if you don't understand what they're actually going to be going through. So that's why there's a lot of clinician education trying to be pushed, um, similar here in Canada, where a group of physicians really wanted to undergo uh, microdosing to understand the aspect of psychotherapy with microdosing, but it got turned down. And we have a list of uh, psychiatrists and psychotherapists and oncologists and PIs that we work with globally that are very interested and trying to find them training uh, is what we're trying to do now with Costa Rica. We've actually had to create a new uh, sort of business model into our Costa Rica project for a client just to train clinicians and PIs to get wow. ready for these studies That's because it's very difficult to do this kind of dosing. Because again, the only way you can access this drug is through a clinical trial. And if you're training clinicians and they want to dose, that's not a study. That's a special access. <laughs> you're literally asking somebody to say, can you give us a bunch of psilocybin or LSD or MDMA so that yeah. the clinicians can take it so they can understand what it's like. That doesn't fly with a lot of jurisdictions. So we're trying to find a way to already, do it. But there have been some clinicians have already done it um, yeah. that we're able to. So um, MAPS does some training and then there's we're seeing more and more organizations. What we're doing is really trying to so that's the other thing that's above and beyond what a CRO does. We have to kind of look at not finding the psychotherapist qualifying them, doing our due diligence to make sure they're appropriate and looking at the training that's required um, so that they're ready to be part of the, the psilocybin study, the MDMA study, that's part of the planning. So it's not just feasibility and getting protocols done and all that other stuff that's already a lot. It's also um, concurrently um, onboarding and getting that ready as well. Hmm. Because if you think about it, you have one room, and one psychotherapist and you have all these integration kind of sessions and all this stuff, you're already filling your calendar. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to have 10 a month or, you know what I mean? So all of that is that operational planning and the staffing is key because you typically have two people to one person for many hours. So it's a whole other layer of it's like a nine hour visit, right? 
for yeah. some yeah. of these things. And then you have your, because you're not doing the psychotherapy at that point, right? Right. You've got to have that a number of sessions later. So you're so. basically doing psychotherapy, like let's say they take MDMA, then then they'll trip out for a little bit and or long. have for a lot of it. <laughs> and then then you do the rating skills, like, right? Is that the- Then you do like the, the psychotherapy, yeah. Psycho, psychotherapy. Yeah. So it's different than the rating skills. Like you're not, are you doing like the PANS, MADRESS, HAMD, yeah, so all that stuff? You're doing your assessments as well, but usually the studies are, you know, I'm sure there's going to be studies where it's standalone, but what we're seeing is um, psychedelics with psychotherapy. With psychotherapy. Yeah. Wow. The MDMA one is with psychotherapy, right? Because um, a lot of these psych clinics, I mean, Chris and I work with them. They don't do that much psychotherapy. It's just writing the script, have a nice day, you know, come back in 30 days. Um, this sounds like it's way more hands-on. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, a, a, an average study, if you will, has about, I want to say 12 visits associated with it uh, oh. in terms of um, baseline screening, uh, integration, psychotherapy, and then follow-up care. And then we're also going pretty far back to like, we're designing PK for a lot of these, because you have to remember that these are very, some of them are first in man trials that we're still at. We're not very far along. Yeah. So with every new sort of molecule that comes out, every new indication or therapeutic area that they're going after, if it's deemed mm. first in man, there is a whole different safety component thrown into this. And a lot of people want to focus on real world evidence and observational studies, which is great. That happens at a lot of retreat settings to gather evidence but it's not how you move commercial drug research forward. As we know, right. that's not what you can collect to take to the regulatory bodies at the end of the day to say, Hey, I want to submit an IND. Uh, can I take my psilocybin based pharmaceutical to market? An RWE study won't cut it. So we have to put all these measures in place. We have to find the right sites. We need to find enough psychotherapists. And this is another thing that's going to come up. Um, you've probably seen a lot of psychotherapist training courses coming up. And there will be a definition or a point where we have to define when you legalize or get these drugs to market as a pharmaceutical, we know that with that comes a label, but we also know that with that comes who can prescribe it and who can provide that therapy. So is it going to be a psychiatrist trained in psychotherapy? Is it going to be a psychologist trained in psychotherapy? Will it be a mental health professional? It just can't be anybody who's an enthusiast or interested in being a psychedelic guide or sitter who enjoys the traditional aspect, which we do need to respect quite a bit, the traditional foundations of this, but you just can't be anybody who's interested in psychotherapy, taking a psychotherapy course online or at a retreat in Jamaica and expect to be employed by a medical group to, that prescribes psychedelics. And that still is far away. That's a good five, 10 years away before five to seven years before we At get least. to the point. Mm -hmm. But we're already seeing a lack of trained psychotherapists for our clinical trials. Imagine for just real world, uh, because I'm thinking my head goes to the payers because we, we analyze a lot of biotechs. I mean, at the end of the day, what good is the drug unless the payers want to pay for it? We've seen a lot yeah. of stocks get a drug approved and then payers say, well, we're not going to pay for it because it doesn't really show much better than what's currently out there. Yeah. So like something like this, this sounds like it would be expensive initially. And then those costs at some point should level out, but you need the infrastructure in place. This is like 10, 20 years, maybe. So you guys are super you, early. And interesting you say that because we also have um, our chief medical officer who's also trained in health economics um, so that and reimbursement, we have another person on our team that looks at reimbursement because, if, you know, and that's what we do with our clients is we start thinking now what reimbursement, because if you think about it, I mean, we see ketamine out there, how many of the average person is going to be able to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. So it's a exactly. health equity question as well. And we want, we usually work with our clients early to start saying, okay, before we do this, what is this going to look like? What's the reimbursement? Um, and also how are we going to now measure the comparison of, what the cost is for this psychedelic with psychotherapy compared to having being on antidepressants for 10 years, 20 years, you know, and potentially therapy. And also what is that health economic cost beyond just that, right? 
not being able to work, not being able to engage as, you know, there's so many aspects of it. And that's one thing that, you know, we work with our client to, to incorporate that into the research as well. You don't want to be thinking about, oh, scratch your head and wonder how reimbursement is going to happen after phase three or when you're in phase three, <laughs> right? Because if your price is too high, you may not even, we've seen drugs like this. I mean, we've been doing this 20 years. I've seen drugs go to market and no one buy it. Yeah. It's just, right? So you have to think about that in the beginning of the planning. This is such a divergence from the paradigm of big pharma. Have you gotten pushback or seen pushback yet? I mean, how are they allowing these small startups to take over like their moat or like encroach upon their moat? I would say that two of the biggest psychedelic companies in the world are probably nipping on the heels in terms of capital size and valuation of some of the biggest pharma companies. They're pretty big. Uh, There's a lot of money behind them. But similar to cannabis, um, you're going to see a lot of phase, the minute phase two data starts to come out, that's when you're going to see companies from a very business standpoint, look at things like IP bundling, where we say we have our data and our results. It's open market. Who wants to buy it? In cannabis and and cannabis specifically, the two biggest deals that have ever happened in the industry were pharmaceutical deals that happened in the last 11 months, with Pfizer buying Arena Pharmaceuticals for $7.2 billion and Jazz Pharmaceuticals buying GW uh, Pharma for 6.7 billion. That totally eclipses any wellness or recreational financial bid. And so similarly, so Big Pharma will let these companies, you know, get out there, start doing the research, start building the relationships, but it's still a very nuanced area. Like we, like we support large CROs in their clinical trials because they don't have the subject matter expertise to even go and find a site to conduct psychedelic research or understand what psychotherapy means or set and setting. So we're finding that we're doing a lot of support right now for big CROs and big pharma to understand this particular industry. But again, Merck's already been in the game. Um, j and is in the game. J&J, Pfizer, yeah. like most of these companies have some compounds similar to it. But mm-hmm. like I said, a lot of these companies are super big. They're already into phase three. It's now a matter of who's going to file or who's going to look to sell their molecules. So we've, we've passed the point where they're going to fight this. They're on board now. It's just, it's just a matter I of. So. I, I see. It's not really what is it competing with? I mean, we know that a lot of people Psych. don't. Antipsychotics. No, no. So. But, um, when we look at antidepressants, it doesn't work for everybody, period. Right. Yeah. And we haven't really had anything new come out for more than 20 years. So, you know, I, I definitely like we see ketamine. So I do think that they're going to be more inclined to jump in rather than fight it whereas mm-hmm. cannabis was like the catch-all it was kind of like invading in the in the pharma space a little bit more um but I, I feel like this is more you know because the approach is a little different it's very much clinical trials and and that kind of focus so i, I do see that pharma mm-hmm. would probably more look at jumping in yeah what we say to clients pretty early on is um if we're having difficulty understanding their objective, we just kind of ask them to pick a lane. Uh, are you in functional wellness or are you a pharmaceutical company? And typically we say that if you're in psychedelics, you're a pharma company and you have to act like a pharmaceutical company that wants to get their drug to market. And again, making that clear distinction between academic based research and commercial research. If you are trying to move your drug to market, you need to be very particular as to where you do your studies, which regulatory jurisdictions you select to start your phase ones all the way to through phase three, but then the market potential. So if you're eventually wanted to take your drug to market, what are the top jurisdictions we're going to the reimbursement and the modeling comes into play. The financials come into play quite a bit. So we do look at the very, a full spectrum approach for our clients to give them that glide path, if you will. Um, and usually, which is very, not atypical of traditional CROs, but traditional work that we do as you know, CRAs and researchers and project managers is when we're at our kickoff meetings and our scoping meetings, we usually have board executives or investors at the table with us or their bankers. So in real time, while we're trying to disseminate clinical endpoints for clinical trials, we're interpreting it into financial acumen for, their, for the investors to understand what are their financial endpoints too. So when do we need this money? What is the perspective valuation? And so our company is a mix of finance, research, medicine, a little bit of everything because 
for not just cannabis and psychedelics, but for a lot of emerging biotech companies, this is what they need. Instead of going to like 10 different companies, we're hopefully trying to provide them with a platform to do this. And especially in psychedelics, um, it's very much proving its case that a lot of these companies do need that help, which is great. We're happy to help them, happy to make their trials a success and, you know, help them get to patients. Interesting. Do you think the Pfizer arena acquisition is sort of a, uh, maybe a template or a roadmap for some of these companies like Tilray or some of the ones that come to mind? Uh, not for the larger LPs. Um, they've vacated the medical space almost yeah. completely. The majority so, of them have, yeah. A lot of our cannabis clients are actually like very pharma biotech cannabis companies that aren't on anyone's radars that have been very focused on drug development for the last few years that have patents that on drug delivery methodologies and we're already in phase two with them. So very different than the companies that are public facing. Like nobody heard of Arena before that deal happened. And they had phase two, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if pharma is going to be looking at cannabis companies, they're going to be looking for specifically pharma minded doing clinical trials and having some data. I mean, we look at that for small biotech, what do they do? They do phase, they have enough money to get through to phase one, phase two, and then they sell. Right. So I think that's what we're going to see. I see. That makes sense. Ashley, Margo, welcome. Hey everybody. Sorry. I know you're super interested wanna... in this topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry. Well, nice to meet you guys. So sorry. You're going um, to Costa Rica. I mean, if they will take me, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love to, I know my, my brother personally, he's, um, he's, you know, suffered from anxiety and multiple things like that. And so he's a really huge proponent of, um, you know, uh, promoting, you know, everybody trying to, uh, give back to research through psychedelics and stuff. So, um, I'm very interested in what you guys do. And, um, actually when I was first getting into research, I, um, I was looking at maps, um, but I didn't have a whole lot of experience. So, my thought was to jump into CRO and then eventually apply to you guys. So, you know, maybe in the future, <laughs> but um, so uh, kind of going back to what uh, something you had mentioned, as far as the environment's concerned, um, do you feel that that's kind of the shift that might be happening in regards to, cause like, I, I know that um, as y'all were mentioning, the environment is a huge um, proponent on how somebody is going to be able to experience the whole thing, the whole the whole scenario, but um, given how there are multiple, I would say like Dan and Chris had said, uh, like doctor, doctor's offices and things like that, they don't have that kind of environment. How do you see that that along with the licensing is going to kind of prolong the adop- uh, adoption of, of this uh, type of therapy? We, we look for sites, like we have a site now, um, well, more than one site and, you know, sites that are open to change in the environment, you know what I mean? That are, that are open to, you know, like, oh yeah, I have a phase one clinic and it looks very hospital-like, but we're open to looking at changing the mood, the, the, you know, putting sitting areas there, having rooms, um, special specific rooms for the practitioner, um, the psychotherapist, having more bathrooms, for example, the last thing you want is, you know, you're, you've just had psilocybin and you need to go to the washroom and you've got to go up an elevator, you've got to go up another floor. I mean, that's just not, you know, so it, it seems like very obvious things, but you know, those are important things as well. Um, yeah. So. If, yeah. And I think what I probably just add is right now it's very popular, like for the, for the past two years, actually ketamine and psychedelic clinics. So psychedelic assisted therapy clinics are popping up. So field trip, uh, Nova mind are probably two that come to mind that are uh, popular in the United States. So they're starting off as ketamine clinic with the interest in moving into psychedelics and therapeutic uses, but you have, and there are a lot of these clinics. So in Canada, we have a lot of them. They're popping up in uh, the United Kingdom. Um, and the difference, what we know as researchers is that when we're finding sites for clinical trials, we have a certain set of criteria. And whilst these clinics are specialty made or specially made for psychedelics and for psychedelic assisted therapy or music therapy or integration, some of these sites aren't conducive to clinical trials or the sites may not want to actually change the way they're designed for research because even though the setting is perfect, it's very calming, you have more couches and sitting areas and washrooms close by, There's no crash carts available. We have no vital equipment. So we don't have any medical equipment close by. 
So there's little things that we need to find that balance. And even if it comes down, you have an early phase clinic that's perfect. Licenses are in order. The PIs are great. Everything's aligned. If they could give up like one of their exam rooms or if they have like a, an extra staff room or something too, that could actually be converted into um, the therapy room for that study. So little things that can be worked into the budgets. For sure. And I, I guess the other thing would be since um, you have mentioned multiple times and uh, excuse me if this has already been said. Um, so, you know, with it, you know, out, even outside of more the recreational use or uh, even more specific to the more holistic use that everyone is familiar with, do you find that it's, it pretty much helps with getting the word out and education out and bringing on potential um, subjects for the research? Yeah, I, I think um, people are more open because it's being talked about now. Um, it's becoming a little mainstream. I mean, I even see like fashion incorporating and decorating is incorporating mushrooms. You know, mushrooms are making a, a, a presence everywhere now, right? <laughs> um, so it's very mainstream. Mainstream magazines are now talking about it um, as, you know, especially that everyone has mental health on their mind. I mean, you know, we've all been through COVID and, and so it's very relatable, right? Like everyone's gone through days where, you know, they can't, they don't want to get up or things have happened to their family. So it's so relatable that people are more open to kind of looking at that. And we're seeing, you know, you know, patients with cancer or patients that are looking at end of life, like in Canada here, a lot of people are trying to get access to the special access program, right? So people are open because what they've tried doesn't work. So I'm going to be open now. Um, my antidepressants didn't work. Or some people I know with TBI, they've gone through the gamut of everything and it hasn't helped. So I think people are just open to trying new things. Um, and I think that that is making it such that we are getting a lot of participants that want to go into clinical trials, but we're still not getting that diverse population. So oh there was God. a study that was done between 1997 and 2017 that basically showed 82.3% were non-Hispanic white. And even when we did that, we did a while back, we did a psychedelic and cannabis uh, conference through our nonprofit. And when we had people even communicating data that was recent, uh, late last year, when they looked at when, when they talked about the demographics, still very much white male, right? So I think that, yes, we're getting people, but not necessarily diversity. And um, we were talking to, I was talking to someone that, um, that we're looking to that we sponsor the um, maps the maps canada mdma study and they were even saying that that's a little bit of a challenge still is getting diverse populations so i think that yes we are getting more volunteers a lot of people want to participate but not necessarily we we have to still look at implementing those things that we know to read to reach out um and we need also that study also show that they didn't have enough ethnic diverse researchers so really important that that's, that that happens. As well. And that's actually what I was going to mention right now. That last part that you just said right now is it the education due to lack of education on the drug or the you know therapy or the actual therapeutic aspect, the stigma behind it. Because I know that um, I mean I'm from a rural area and so um, predominantly uh, Hispanics, and I know that it's it's very not very common for individuals to go to therapy in general, right? So. Um, makes me wonder whether it's the, the psychotherapy or the, ther the therapy that's probably not getting as much of a, I guess you could say like catch, but definitely a lot of education for sure is, is needed. And thank you guys so much for what you do. But uh, we actually have a question here. Uh, how big is psychedelic research in the areas like pain, addiction, and oncology related pain? And can you please throw some light on this? Um, it's very big. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, numbers, if we want to put a dollar figure to the industry, um, I think for between now and 2025, we're looking at $24 billion is the size of the industry in terms of R&D money going into drug development, clinical research, and just investment into companies. Um, but that also includes not just research, it includes sites and infrastructure. Um, I would say the research side in a non-academic sense, so commercial isn't very big at the moment. You still only have a handful of companies that have the capital to actually run clinical trials. Uh, you also only have a handful of sites and investigators and psychotherapists capable of actually doing the research. So to Sabrina's point, when we start to pool resources and find PIs with 
experience that can kind of help, but also psychotherapists and sites with site licenses, it's very small. Um, It's getting there, I think, like one of our studies that we're currently, we kicked it off in the UK, we'll probably be turning it into a multi-center study fairly soon, probably at the end of the year. And we will be reaching out to new sites to to bring on board. I think it just comes down to um, enthusiasm in the market, more clinicians expressing interest and sites actually being ready to, to do this kind of research too. But it's when there's licenses involved that require filings, applications, it's a catch-22. Where's the demand? Will we actually apply for the license and back and forth? For sure. Wow. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> And um, now stating that we're kind of, you know, in the last, I guess, 10 minutes, um, for those that more than likely that this is the first time, you know, learning about maps and just anything psychedelics within research, pretty sure the most common questions are, um, you know, are you all looking for um, professionals and research that are wanting to join your team? And, and you know, how, how often is that? And, and are there particular um, roles that you are kind of in need of at the moment? I think it's all dependent on the trials that we have, right? So, um, you know, if let's say tomorrow we have a, a clinical trial with PTSD, um, you know, then we're going to look for people with like project manager with um, that type of therapeutic experience, because, you know, when we look for people, they're not going to necessarily have experience with psychedelics, right? <laughs> so it's really, we look at therapeutic area um, expertise. Also uh, patient recruitment is really important for us. So like, let's, we had the PM we recently brought on board, she has a lot of experience um, with rescue studies. So we know that, and also so she, she kind of talked really great about how she in, you know, looked at diversity in clinical trials. And those are all important things to us. So it's almost like matchmaking, you know, this is the study, what are the things that are needed? And we know recruitment's gonna be big because psychedelic companies tend to have a very aggressive timeline because they all want to get to market. So it's very aggressive, uh, potentially lots of sites. So it's really just kind of matching, you know, therapeutic experience that lends it well to that particular client and what they're looking for. Yeah. Earlier, we put a call to action. Everybody reach out to Sabrina at <laughs> node group on LinkedIn. We'll have her LinkedIn underneath. Uh, <laughs> Jasper. Yeah, we do have another question. You can get to it, but uh, she basically explained the roadmap. You know, it's important oh, okay. to have the CNS background. So if you're in the space and not in CNS, oncology, pain, addiction, try to get into those first and then work your way into one of these. You've got time. All right. This is the beginning. This is the early days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm, as a psychiatric site, like I'll sneak in one of my questions here. I had personally, as somebody, Chris and I, we own some, some uh, CNS clinics. That industry is always going through fluctuations, boom, bust, boom, bust. Do you think, obviously you guys are a little bit biased, but try to give an unbiased answer. Maybe do you think this is the new form of CNS therapy, treatment, research over the next few decades, or can they both coexist together? I think they can definitely coexist. I think uh, like the way we look at it is there is just one therapeutic in the arsenal of therapeutics that clinicians have uh, to be able to support patients because with any product, we know that there's a 30% chance it doesn't work with the participant or the patient. We know that. So I think that if from a clinical staff, from a yeah, from a clinical and a pharmacological standpoint, it's a very exciting area of research. We already know there's evidence. We know there's a lot of neuroplasticity evidence as well that shows to a number of different indications that needs to be further explored. But I think this just adds or is a contributing factor to building the portfolio of products and therapeutics we have to treat this myriad of mental health illnesses we have in front of us right now. And another thing you kind of confirmed for us. So maybe there's a new psychiatrist just wanting to get started in research. Maybe they also have addiction medicine subspecialty. In your opinion, it's not a waste of time for them to get the schedule one. This is early, right? Uh, And maybe having in mind the set and setting when they design their clinic. Uh, Do you think that's decent advice? 
for a new psychiatrist who's really interested in this, but also interested in traditional clinical trials as well. I totally think so because ketamine, first of all, is ketamine is already standard of therapy in a number of jurisdictions. Like in Australia, it's first line therapy in mental health disorders. Uh, in the United States, it's second or third line, depending on the state or the jurisdiction that you're in. Canada as well. And the psychotherapy component is an additional component that's just part of the package. Psychedelics complement psychotherapy, not the other way around. Um, so we need to be able to enhance everything. So I think having a schedule schedule one license, if it makes business sense uh, to do it right from the very beginning, makes you more of an attractive clinical trial site regardless, because you now have a schedule one license. Um, but I think that building in that set and setting just for psychotherapy, which you can use for just traditional consults outside of research, totally makes sense. Yeah. And um, we outside of, you know, looking for people when we start getting as, as, every time we get new projects and things like that, we're always looking for sites. But we have also had psychiatrists reach out to us just randomly and say, you know, they have their site, but they want to be involved in clinical trials. So and they're open to being maybe an investigator at another site to get experience. So we're also open to that as well. Um, so if psychiatrists, you know, they already do psychotherapy, they already have that experience, but just not with psychedelics, you know, they can contact us because if we do have a study in the area, we could be like, oh, great. You know, that's something someone we could pull on. And we're always looking at training as part of doing the clinical trial. Anyways, we're just always looking for people that are interested and have the right experience. We awesome. could splice that. We could splice that part out and uh, make that its own piece of content for <laughs> new physicians entering research. Maybe definitely something definitely. positive for them to consider. Thank you, guys. Everything, everything you all shared today. I mean, um, I need to go back and watch the part that I missed for <laughs> sure. I'm pretty sure I'm going to come up with more questions because um, this is really just. I'm sure it's just like the top of you know the ice cream, however you want to put it. So. Uh, thank you guys for all the work that you do. We really appreciate it. And we hope that we can continue to have you on here um, and, you know, to kind of give more and more information as everything progresses. Um, but Chris, Dan, anything else? I, I got my questions in. <laughs> but thank awesome. you guys so much for coming so much, on. Sabrina, Jess, oh, we, thank you for joining us. It was yes, very interesting. You. And uh, everybody watching and listening on YouTube, uh, LinkedIn or um the podcast, whatever podcast is your favorite, uh, links underneath to connect with Sabrina Jespreet and the Node group on LinkedIn. So thank you guys. Thanks everyone. Bye. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.